Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. This episode is part two of a conversation with Joe Carroll of Cross River and John Green of Black Star Real Estate Partners. Joe and John are African-American real estate professionals that have been in the, in the business for approximately 20 years now. Last time we talked about what they're doing today, their origin stories as being black men growing up in the South and, and then going on to undergraduate at UVA for John and then FAMU for Joe. And then they both met at Harvard Business School and they each got dual degrees at Harvard Graduate School, moving into the real estate business. Joe going to Low Enterprises and John going to McFarland Partners at the time. Both have now moved into their own cup businesses, as we talked about in the last episode. So for this episode, I want to transition the discussion into some of the social issues of today. And I've gotten their perspective on that because they bring, you know, a senior executive perspective of having being in those types of positions in real estate and on being entrepreneurs. So they look at it from that and they study the their fellow peers in the industry, as well as ways for young black men and women getting into our industry and some some ideas and lessons and thoughts, and then how we all should be looking at this issue today. So it's a very interesting conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Joe and John. And which is an excellent segue to our next conversation. And this is where I'd like both of your, your guys' input here, if we could. So um, I'd like to go into uh, the, you know, post-George Floyd and other incidents that have occurred in the last, you know, eight to 12 months in to raise public awareness again of the social inequities, primarily in the Black community in this country. And you guys are probably in the point one. One uh, 0.01% level as far as achievement in the black community yourselves. So you guys are superstars because both Harvard graduates, very successful businessmen and done extraordinarily well. But I would like your perspective on it because, you know, you grew up in both in, in the South. So you have that perspective. So I'd like to hear what you have to say about that, how, what your feelings are about what's going on right now. And how you think uh, we can we can emerge from this, and what advice you might give to employers, investors, landlords, government officials, other people in our industry, to try to bring awareness and also to improve the status of the uh, of the black population today. So I'll leave it at that. What do you think, guys? What's probably most um, 
compelling about this time is how different things uh, led up to this to kind of fallow the soil, so to speak, for hopefully seeds to go into the soil and receive the appropriate water and the appropriate sun so we can grow the green shoots of what should be a country um, that is fair and equal and provides opportunity to everyone. So I think, you know, that following um, came uh, from this 100 year, you know, event of the pandemic. It caused people um, from all walks of life to sort of assess uh, where they were in life and whether they were, in fact, you know, doing the, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You know, did they have life? Did they have liberty? Did they, did they have the ability to pursue happiness? And then these sparks, these embers, these seeds, however you want to use the analogy, that had constantly been thrown on fallow land when other extra-legal atrocities were being, you know, uh, promulgated, they weren't taking root. Like, it would, kind of, it would kind of flare up. You would see the seed. Oh, someone was murdered by police over here. Someone was murdered here, and then the social media and everything, but it wasn't, it wasn't really sticking. But now I think it is. And so it's incumbent upon everyone, and I think, you know, not the least of which is real estate, to make sure those seeds are watered and, 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 and receive the uh, proper amount of light um, so they can grow. And as we know, that's, I mean, growth is a, is a hard you know, concept. And it's something that over the long term, uh, we're going to have to weed a little bit and we're going to have to, and I'm going deep into this farmer analogy. I don't know why, but, you know, you know, it's not going to be overnight. You don't just plant a seed and like, okay, water at one time and it's gone, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's good to go. So that's what I kind of look at um, because I think a lot of, the actions that have been done in the short term, not saying they're bad, but they are not long term. Right. So if, you know, if I feel guilty or I feel compelled, according to which side you're, you're on, how do you want to view that? And I, you know, give money or I decide to change the name of my product or whatever. That's just it's just a short term. Like, OK, I'm making sure the seed gets in the ground. But I'm not necessarily watering. I'm not necessarily, because that's it. That, that was my contribution. My contribution was to change the name of Anchamama Syrup. You know, that was my contribution, right? And it's like, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't get it done. What are you doing long-term to make sure this continues? Are you establishing a, you know, racist image, you know, campaign? Are you giving to HBCUs or people of color, are you, what are you doing about people in your organization? So that, 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 that's what I think everybody's, this sort of buzzword of structural racism or institutional racism, that's the piece. And that's the hard work that needs to be done. John. So John, you have children. What are you telling your children about this today? And, and how, uh, Joe just talked about the long-term. Your children the long-term. I mean, and then your grandchildren in the long term. I mean, what do you want your children to grow up believing and how they want to address it? 
and uh, going forward. And and what do you think? For, what seeds are you planting in their mind about the long term opportunities here for change? The seeds I plant with my my, my three sons, you know, kind of proceed with the, the moment, and you you definitely try to give enough perspective. Of you know, to leverage, you know, the, the reality of what's going on. But, you know, I think there's, there's a lot, I think that you, you know, instinctively protect as well. My, my, my children are nine, seven, four. So you know, their awareness of, you know, what issues mean and, you know, what prompts them, you know, I think first is making sure that they feel, feel secure and, and loved and valuable and, and, and know that there's, that, that there's nothing, there's nothing that they've done wrong, that there's, there's nothing that, that's an imminent threat to them um, because I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, for children, a lot of, of uh, misinformation has the capacity to, um, to prevail. I think, you know, the, the bigger point, and Joe touched, uh, touched on, I think, are, you know, that, you know, there's a long arc of, um, you know, perspectives about race and um, in this country and, and, and indeed in the world and, you know, helping them to have the context that it's that long arc that um, that matters, and and how uh, I, I think many of us are are hopeful that a lot of the activity uh, activities of the moment have the capacity to be more enduring. But I think that we're very cautious about to what extent you know they they will be, um, because there is a temptation to be satisfied with with very uh, expedient and very fleeting solutions. And, you know, as a, as a, as a nation, you know, we tend to have a very short attention span. Um, and so, and, and in some ways, you know, the, um, you know, the activities of the day, you know, have the, they're not easy answers. They're not, they're not ones where you just flip a switch and, and, and suddenly they're healed because it took a long time and they're complex and nuanced issues that took hundreds of years to, to bring to this point. And so if there were easy, they would have been exercised at this point. So whether we have collectively the stamina to do what's required to make those enduring, you know, whether for my children or their children, I think is a task that, you know, not only falls to, to, to them, but to, to all of us, uh, all of us collectively. When you look at issues like the wealth gap that exists in this country, it's um, in, our, in our chairs, you know, know the imp- implications of compounding interest and, and, and what for value and what it means, especially when you talk about compounding multi-generationally. And, and we're literally talking mm-hmm. about hundreds of years of, of entrenched, not only behavior, but, um, you know, the economic implications of that. And so, you know, if you look at the racial wealth gap in this country, for instance, you know, there's a uh, uh, the median white family has uh, a level of wealth that's roughly 17x the, the median black family, partially because of the compounding effects and also because you know, a lot of the, the structural issues that contributed to that persist to this day, you know, that's not a gap that's closing, it's getting worse, right? You know, the, you know, the, the, the stat is that if you take the growth rates over the last 30 years and apply them uh, going forward, that it will take the median black family roughly 200 years to attain the level of wealth that the median white family has today, right? Not to, not to close the gap, but to, 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 to get to, to that level. There are obvious problems uh, within the system. And, and real estate, I think, has a unique opportunity and a very important role to play because it's at the next of, of right. many of the activities. It, it affects both. It's the largest asset class in the, in the world. It's one where there's huge disparity in terms, there have been huge disparities in, in 
who's had the opportunities to own and how they've been able to, to finance. And, you know, the strategy that I mentioned is, you know, relates in part to how people have been able to, to finance their own homes. But then also, you know, there's huge disparity in terms of the composition of the, of the workforce and who has decision-making authority in that. So, you know, that, that wealth gap that I mentioned, you know, look, for the median family in the United States, two-thirds of their wealth is tied up to their principal residence, right? And so, given that there are very clear and specific policies and actions that not only individuals, but the, in, including the U.S. government have taken over a specific period of time, you know, really, you know, since the housing boom that started in the mid-1930s, um, you know, through today, there's just very... Very discreet policy. Facilitated by the government. I mean, it wouldn't exist at period if it wasn't, you know, government. In in very explicit and deliberately redistributive ways out of the the, the favor of of, of black and brown people in this country. So, you know, there has to be some acknowledgement. There has to be some some, some actions to, to countermand that, you know, or else, you know, we're at a point where you know, what's been precipitated, you know, doesn't necessarily stand to change that the EEOC, if, if you look at the, um, at the composition of the workforce, though, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's blaring, you know, you, you can look around at any event, any conference, any company, and the disparities are, 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 are obvious. And right. you know, there's a lot more comfort around that than, than there really should be. The EEOC did a study and um, a, a few years ago, where they were looking at the composition of executive leadership, the, the figures for the real estate industry were very, very telling, as well as how those compare to other industries. Uh, nationally, the senior executive uh, leadership and, and, uh, and individuals uh, responsible for leading large groups, nationally, there were only, uh, there, there were only roughly 2% uh, of them who, uh, who, who were Black. That's, you know, if you look at the composition of our country, that's, that, that should be scary and unacceptable to, you know, to, to, to all of us, I think. If you look in D.C. Yeah, not, not, and, and John, sorry for cutting you off, but not just from the workforce perspective, but these companies, their customers are African-Americans as well. So it's, it's, it's just in all ways, mm-hmm. real estate has been coddled a lot and our our viewpoint is that our market is a pure market and therefore we don't need interventions or we don't need you know and that's that's the issue as as john said you know it's the largest industry it's the it's the way that most people create wealth on a family level and yet we feel like it's nothing we can do about it. Like I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm saying I'm part of it. It's like I sell to whoever comes through the door, right? Whoever's able to pay the most, whoever's able to, you know, but that needs to be sort of rethought because what we do as a result, and I'll tell you just a brief story. I was on a call not too long ago and we were talking about a deal that we have in, um, on Capitol Hill, and someone on a call basically said, before 1980, there were no people on Capitol Hill. (laughs) Right? They literally said no people. And I'm like, wait a minute, there were Black people on Capitol Hill. Before people start moving to Capitol Hill, he literally said that. Before people start moving to Capitol Hill, as if Capitol Hill was like a vast meadow 
<laughs> and I'm oh like, my God. you know, and, and I'm saying, I'm not even saying he's insensitive. I'm just saying that's the, the mindset. mindset. You're thinking yeah. about qualified buyers. You have a view of that. And so, you know, that, that, that is the piece. And I, and I, I know John also have conflict around that because, you know, gentrification and our role in gentrification. And I know from, you know, my studies of, you know, civil engineering, we had a class like in undergrad where it talked about history of civil engineering. And it showed that even in ancient Rome or ancient Greece, there was gentrification. So gentrification is not new. So cities rebirth themselves, blah, blah, blah. So there are economic forces that cause that. The question is, should the government or should individuals that want something to be different have a role in that? So the problem to me with the 1930s housing boom, all that stuff is that, that and, and you know, desegregation, that the government was complicit in that, right? So if it was just a natural phenomenon, then I, I you know, as a marketeer, I might be able to like, ah, you know, John, you know, he's a policy wonk, so he might be like, still like, oh, that was wrong. But I, I'll at least say, okay, the natural market was doing what it needed to do. Like people had, to, but if these cheap loans wouldn't have been available, these white families would not have been able to leave the city in the way that they left, right? So it just accelerated, you know, the, the way that, or, you know, school policy and the resistance of states to equalize schools across the state and just break them into school districts, right? To, to break into school districts, say this school district separate from school district. A lot of school districts were created in this time frame, and that was complicit um, from the government. So then, then the question becomes, now that we know we've established that they were complicit in this, how do we, do, how do we encourage complicity, complicity now? <laughs> because you, you've done this already. So to say that it's a sunk cost and that's just, it is what it is. And, you know, we just go on with our life is, I, th- I think, a cop out for the real estate industry to say, okay, I wasn't around at that time. It didn't happen to me, but let's keep going to where we are. And, you know, that's what I sort of worry about. And it frames even the way I select opportunities, whether technology or real estate or multifamily or op- it frames sort of how I, um, how I select opportunities because I want to do my part to write that. Because we are, unfortunately, our real estate is not only large, but it's very fragmented. So I have to do my part to write that. So, I, you know, I'm sorry for interrupting you, John, but I just got no, excited. No, 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 no. I, I absolutely agree. I, I think there's, you know, there is, you know, on both sides, you know, the, you know, the product that we affect as well as, you know, kind of our, our industry itself as a, as a product that, you know, we both have to be, you know, examined and scrutinized closely. I mean, you know, ultimately there is a, there is a lie of the notion of meritocracy that, that we've accepted and, 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 and told ourselves is that's simply not true. And we've accepted that things are the way that they are, you know, as a function of natural forces and that, you know, that this is the way that it, that it is. And I, I would say that, you know, we, we know enough collectively that if we're being honest with ourselves, even if we don't take on the, um, you know, the effort to, to, to really closely scrutinize the, the history and, you know, a, a lot of which are, 
you know, as we've said, you know, uh, objective and, and, and um, you know, clear in, in, in their implications, just looking at, what, at the composition of our industry and, and um, the execution of products today, I think, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's much that's, that, that's very obviously problematic about that. And, and that's not a new notion. You know, there's um, a brilliant economist um, who spent a lot of time in this area, Tom Schelling, who uh, won a Nobel Prize years ago. And a big part of his work centered around game theory and, and tipping theory. And in particular, he was looking at, um, you know, some of what contributed to at the, the economic factors that contributed to white flight. And, and the, the epiphany in, in his work was that you don't have to have strong biases or preferences when you're amassing large numbers to, to dramatically create a, a very homogenized outcome, right? That white flight can be inevitable with very small biases that you didn't you didn't have to have this strong visceral reaction to people looking different from you in order to result in, in neighborhoods that look very different. And by extension, if you look at our industry, you don't have to have strong biases to, to create a workforce that doesn't look any different from you, right? You know, we are in what is a quintessential relationship industry, right? Where, you know, ultimately there are a lot of smart people and a lot of complex problems that we solve, but you can get smart people on, right? You know, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that very smart, very talented people with good training can do the majority of the functions required to, to execute real estate well, yet there's a huge disparity in the composition of who's granted the opportunity to do it and granted the capital to do it. And I think we've, we've seduced ourselves into thinking that, you know, that has it, it looks the way that it does because of natural forces, because there are not enough people to do that who look different and I just can't find them. Therefore, they, they, they must not be there. And that's just not, that's, that, that's not true. You know, as much as I'd like to, I, I know how exceptional Joe is as a person. And I'd love to think that, you know, that, uh, you know, that he's uh, a, 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 a unicorn that can't be, be replicated, but there, there are a lot of talented people who could do Extraordinary, extraordinary work, and, and we treat it as though it's as though it's something other than that, and, and we all owe a, a burden to that. If you look in DC real estate, that same EEOC, EEOC study that I mentioned um, showed that ninety six percent of uh, senior executives responsible for leading large teams in the DC metro region in real estate were uh, identified themselves as, as white. So if you think about, you know, the composition of our region, you know, a majority minority region, 96% of, of uh, real estate senior leadership, you know, identifies as white, that's, that's, that, that, that's amazing. And, and it's, that's not the same in other industries, right? That same study show here in the DC metro area and the financial services and then an insurance industry that 65% mm-hmm. of senior leadership identified as white. It is an acute problem in our industry and we, and we need to take action. And, and a lot of, you know, what happens to the point that I mentioned about meritocracy earlier is not necessarily a function of objective criteria. You know, I've been a part of, you know, several transactions where we, like, I, I was responsible for a portfolio at McFarland of, you know, more than $5 billion of, uh, of AUM, we had, you know, more than 125 properties. And, you know, so we were part of a lot, of, a lot we had a lot of points of reference. And I was across asset types, and across several markets, uh, a lot of that here in the deep metro region, you, you know enough to know that 
the way that deals get done are not exclusively a function of people showing up and their money being green and, you know, them paying the highest price, them offering the highest price to be able to buy and sell properties. That other factors often come in and relationships are often at the center of that. And so you can find people uh, who are on the outside of the capacity to get transactions done, uh, not solely as a function of lack of access to capital, but lack of access to relationships and for a whole host of other uh, other reasons. So we have to collectively acknowledge that and do something about it. You know, the the small businesses matter a lot. We've we've as a country have have gotten comfortable with this idea that racism exists and we think of it as something that can exist without racists, right? We, we, we've kind of right. reduced the notion of what constitute, constitutes being a racist as, as something that is, that's a civil rights era, you know, kind of caricature. If yeah. it's, unless it's Bull Connor or George Wallace, yeah. it's not really racist. And it's, you know, and the, the fact is that just the small biases in the day to day that, that create this sort of dynamic that exists today didn't require and, that. And, and, and that we have to acknowledge and do something about it. And what, ahead, what do we have to do is the question. I mean, what, what, what you think? So I want to transition to that because John said something really critical about network. Part of racism, as he said, the absence of racism is not enough. You have to be anti-racist. Right. You have to you have to step outside of your comfort zone to do the work. So if you're hiring and you're going to the same locations, the you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different outcome. So you go to the same locations looking for talent. You go you you ask your uh, local you know uh, private school about their lacrosse team and who played lacrosse at UVA and who did this and who did so that's going to create and I'm sorry John that's going to create the same people coming to the industry and I know probably now your podcast will, you know all the UVA people send bad messages to you and, and lacrosse <laughs> but, but I know that that's I'm the thing UVA and my son's playing lacrosse that is the thing UVA. <laughs> UVA lacrosse, that's a thing. We all know that, right? And how many African-Americans are going to UVA? John went, how many African-Americans are playing lacrosse? So if you continue to go to this well, you're going to get the same outcome. So you have to step outside of yourself, outside of your network, and do the work, right? You have to say, okay, I'm going to go somewhere where I feel uncomfortable. I don't know these people. I don't know the people at Howard. I don't know the people at Bowie. I don't know the people at Florida and where I went. You know, I don't know the local churches. I don't, you know, whatever it is, say, okay, there's a council of Shaw churches. I will send an, a work thing, not to LinkedIn, which is just going just gonna to communicate all the people that connect to my company, even though my company exists but to the churches of Shaw. So that's stepping outside yourself, outside of your network, knowing that there are separate networks because we're most separated by our networks, right? So people like John or I that went to UVA or Harvard start to kind of be that intermediary, but I have trouble sometimes really accessing large pools of black talent. You know what I'm saying? out there, but I'm saying I have to step out of myself because a lot of my network looks white, 
mm-hmm. and affluent and you know whatever. So I have to step outside of myself. So that that I would say that is the number one thing that real estate leaders can do today is very actionable and it's actually very easy if you ask just a few questions. So that's <laughs> I, I, I would piggyback on that. I, I think that is absolutely the case. I think you know even more broadly, you know what I would say. I look at my own attitudes toward you know hiring. And I look at other other organizations, and in a lot of cases, you want a dynamic person, and the people who are best uh, best capable of serving that role well are dynamic people. They're the, for lack of better words, the best athlete. I think is you know kind of the the parlance that that we often often use. You're not necessarily lacrosse. <laughs> not. <laughs> so. So, so there are people that may not necessarily be formally trained in real estate, but they 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 have the problem solving skills, the smarts, and the, the the force of character to be able to serve in lots of roles. And other industries pick up on this and and use it uh, aggressively. I look at the analyst class that I was a part of at Goldman Sachs, and I really remember being blown away at first, but by just how varied the backgrounds were. I was an engineer undergrad, and uh, I think when I started, I anticipated that it, that it would be dominated by people who were finance and and business majors undergrad um, and the analyst program. Uh, there definitely were there def- definitely was a quorum of those, but there were no shortage of art history majors, English lit majors, architect people who had varied and extremely divergent backgrounds who were there and who came and who uh, all received the same training and came and were extremely effective in that role at, at a venerated institution like Goldman. Yet in our industry, I find us um, not as consistently willing to, to look in broad and varied places in order to, 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 to bring in talent. And I think by acknowledging that, you know, there are some things that there, there are a lot, lots of functions in our industry that, that we can take a talented, motivated person and train them up to do extremely well and, and committing ourselves to the, to the yeoman's work of doing it is important. You know, the, the, the reality is that I think, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these roles are, are aggressively protected and, and no one necessarily likes to acknowledge that, right? You know, if you look in, look, there are commoditized, there are more commoditized aspects of certain functions of, of our industry, yet they're protected in the same ways that longshoremen protect their roles. And it is a very relationship-driven, paternalistic sort of, of situation where, you know, where the children of other people in the industry, you know, come in and it's very incestuous. You know, I, getting into the industry, you, I had no perspective for how multi-generational not only the wealth is, but the opportunities uh, to, to, to be active in the space. And so to the point that Joe makes about network effects, how do you crack in if if the, if the composition of the existing workforce doesn't look the way that it, it doesn't look in a representative manner that you that we're collectively saying should be, if not a frame of reference, hopefully a, a goal, then how are we going to do anything about that when the difference between getting in or out is not the, the, the distinction of being more qualified to get in? It's not a meritocracy in those ways. And, the, you know, what makes you the best prospective candidate for a is not necessarily traditional training. So collectively, we have to act uh, differently in, in those ways. How do they sit, using uh, Joe's earlier analogy of, of farming and, and, and shoots, how do, we, how do we plant the seed and how do we nurture young minority students to 
you know, excel in our business. Now, there are some programs that I'm aware of. One I'm involved in called Urban Plan, Mm -hmm. which is a ULI-sponsored group, and we go into high schools. And and, uh, it's interesting to look at the uh, participants of this program, but it's pretty diversified. Even in Bethesda Chevy Chase High School here in Montgomery County, uh, the, the, the county, even though it's in an affluent neighborhood that is predominantly uh, white, it uh, they have 40 countries represented in the, in this at the school and very diverse uh, student population there, including the students that I've seen. But there are three schools in the district, and two of them are uh, charter schools that are predominantly African American black students that are participating in it. And I was involved in a national program that was involved, which was excellent. The other program is Project REAP, R-E-A-P, which um, mm-hmm. years ago with uh, uh, Mike Bush, who used to be the head of real mm-hmm. estate for Giant Food. And he, on purpose, uh, went after young African-American, black, white uh, men and women uh, that had were looking for career opportunities in, in our mm-hmm. business. And we had classes specifically just for that. And to me, if we can accelerate programs like those, led by gentlemen like you, who are mm-hmm. <laughs> extraordinary and have net and have a network, I think things could change. What do you think about that? Both of those programs are excellent. I'm familiar with both, with with REAP, especially because it's been around for you know multiple years, and you can see its impact uh, through the industry. And where those folks are initially placed and where they end up, you can really see the trajectory, kind of to your point about, you know, nurturing the seed. I also think that the other way to make sure, and I think that's what REAP does at the job of an urban plan, like I said, since it's newer, I'm not as, you know, clear what the trajectory is, but the, the folks in REAP create a network effect of their own, right? So those that like me or John or whether they come in and speak or their own classmates, they continue to check in on each other and therefore they keep themselves rolling toward the future, right? To really continue to infiltrate the real estate industry. And I say infiltrate because that's almost like what it is. It's not like, it's like, it's like you're a spy. Like it's like you are like literally infiltrating the, the industry. I think the other piece is something I hinted at at the beginning of this call about particularly the role that Eileen Serco and later Mike Balaban uh, played in, in my career and then even later that uh, Mark Rivers in just encouraging me. And like I said, it's weird to say, but I have to say because of the nature of our industry taking a chance on me, right? <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people don't perceive it that way, but unfortunately, because of my lens, I had to perceive it that way, that I was able to take on the responsibilities that I w- was at such an early age, not only, you know, in age as far as number of years, but also in experience in real estate, right? For them to recognize, okay, this is a rocket scientist and he's smart enough to get it done. And so, so we have to make a concerted effort to do that because the only times, for instance, the only times I'm ever asked, oftentimes when I'm asked about a candidate that's a minority, 
someone will always ask inevitably, and, and, and John was getting at this, well, how are they, how are they with numbers? Whereas when I'm recommending a, a white person, no one asks that, right? It's like, it's like an assumption that they understand numbers. And so that's a bias that, okay, now we've gone out and got this person and now we think they're a good person, but we're not sure if they understand the numbers. Whereas if it was somebody from UVA lacrosse, they don't understand the numbers either. Like I've been on with brokers, brand new, um, you know, brokers, you know, great networker. They don't understand. Them. I'm like, no, um, that cap rate is wrong. Blah, you know, and the brokers don't care about that because they want their network. But they, they but they really care about if you're African-American. Obviously, the only thing you're bringing is being able to run numbers. So can you run numbers? So. And I'm not saying I want to make sure every black person knows you need to know how to run the numbers. I'm sorry. I just want to be, be clear about that. I'm not, I'm not saying, don't learn how to run numbers. I tell every black person I mentor, run numbers, get in somebody's program, do something, run numbers. But I want to be clear that there are many, 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 many people in our industry that cannot run numbers. Executives that almost can't run numbers, right? We all know. I, we don't have to call out. So you're podcast would be even less popular, John, but it, it, it exists, right? It's a thing. And we just have to have to recognize that. So that's what REAP does so well. REAP in, introduces them to things that would automatically disqualify them because of the color of their skin, that they don't understand a term, that they don't understand numbers, that they don't do X, Y, Z, even though their counterpart is okay for them not to know that stuff. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so that I, I just want to be clear about that. So that's why I think Reap does a good job, but it is kind of <clears throat> sad when you think about it in a way, but it's okay because this isn't, John can pick up where I left off on this. This isn't the first time we have to do more stuff to get to where, where, where we need to be. And I think black people are comfortable with that. And at least I, I'm, I'm tired of being mad about it. It's no reason to be mad about it. You know what I'm saying? So just, yeah, I, I agree with those points. And I would say our industry is unique, a, a bit unique in that there are just so many hats you can wear, so many roles that you can can fill that part of the task for, for anyone who would choose to enter the industry is figuring out what you like and what you don't like. And it's hard to do that without, you know, being without without exposure and without the opportunity to figure out, you know, what sorts of what sorts of roles, what sorts of companies and institutions and approaches are the ones that resonate most, most with you. And so I, I think part of what's required to, to do that is um, exposure at multiple levels. And I think the earlier it starts, the better. But I, I think attacking the problem on a multi-front basis, you know, starting to cultivate that interest with younger students that are, you know, at the, at the high school level and, and perhaps even earlier to start to provide exposure and awareness, you know, undergrad, grad school, because there are just so many different points of entry and so many ways to, to be involved in the industry. So I, I think the programs that you mentioned, and, and I'm, I'm familiar with those as well, are fantastic. And, and there are others. Um, Reese has uh, some programs, uh, SEO, En-ROADS, Twigo, amongst others. And I think, you know, collectively, they can all serve, you know, very important purposes. And whether it's those organizations or, or others, to help to you know to to provide some of the points of entry, some of the, the some of the exposures, um, I, I think those are are important. And I think to the other point that Joe makes, look, there are just certain foundational skills that uh, are going to 
make you uh, someone who is a valuable contributor to any organization. And so finding ways to help um, prime the pump into those places and to mine the talent from those places as well. So, so, so the investment banks and the private equity shops and the brokerages are certainly places where, where that can happen. The, the, the schools, and, and Joe alludes to, I mean, look, it's not just the mainstream schools, but the HBCUs and, and others can be concentrated sources of talent and, and, and helping to, to support organizations at, across schools that help to foster that, you know, real estate affinity groups within those, you know, a, a little bit can go a long way toward, um, toward, toward fostering that, that, um, uh, that interest and creating a, a really sustainable pipeline and, and, and other industries and groups have been effective at doing it. And one that, you know, is really interesting to me is, um, you know, uh, as a potential source of, of talent is, is the nonprofit industry. Because in real estate, you know, I, there's a great irony to me in the work that they do because they tend to be less well compensated for doing a harder version of the same work as their- you mean, non, non real estate, non-profit real estate companies, right? That's yeah. 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 I agree. Like, like, like community builders, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So an organization like community builders has an interesting challenge in that, you know, they have to build a multifamily pro- uh, project that involves more constituents than the typical market rate product. They have to do it with a more complicated capital stack than the, than the market rate product. Uh, at least four, as they told, at least four different products are in there. <laughs> Sometimes six, you know. Yeah. So, and, and that is the, that, that's just the, the nature of that business. And, and the irony is that that sort of dynamic and the expectation of, if not martyrdom, you know, the notion that their compensation shouldn't have parity with others and that, 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 that would persist, you know, creates a lot of attrition amongst the folks that are, that are in that, you know, sort of nonprofit development space. And it creates, um, you know, this, this, this dynamic where uh, as the, uh, there, there tends to be a lot more attrition and, and, and turnover. So it's a fantastic training ground, I think, uh, for talent, of, of fi- a, a fantastic place to, to try to find and, and identify talent. And I think, you know, w- one of the things that's interesting to me is that, that within our industry, you know, there are definitely groups that have recognized that and have tapped into it so much so that there's almost an expectation that a lot of the dynamic professionals, you know, will have come from that rung. So I, I, I uh, have a colleague locally who uh, was, um, was hired to lead a, um, uh, a large organization, a, a new region for a um, large organization that was, um, that, that had sprouted out. And so they were, you know, going to be a large regional developer. Uh, this person uh, has had a very exceptional career um, here uh, in the DC metro region and a few other places working with huge organizations doing a lot of commercial development across uh, across asset types and so after a long process of hiring they were picked to 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 lead this this region for the organization and as they were sitting with the CEO and the COO of the company to lay out their plan you know and their sort of uh, 100 day you know after their sort of like kind of 100 day period you know the, the the executive leadership of the firm gives uh, gives their feedback, and and essentially what they say is, you know, we love the plan, we love the um, we love the concepts, and and we think that these are uh, elements that make a lot of sense. But we what we would also really like you to to see you 
incorporate and to teach our team to do well are these low-income housing tax credit projects. We we think that you know there's a lot of you know that there's a that there's a lot of opportunity out there to do light tech projects, and you know that it's compelling. You know this 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 person responds. You know that, that seems fantastic. I, I I agree. I think that there's a you know workforce multifamily makes a lot of sense, but I've never done a light tech project in my life. You know what would make you think I would be the right person to to teach the team that you know. And, you know, there's, you know, crickets, you know, said, so, you know, after having gone through this multi-month, you know, being run through the ringer, several interview sort of process to take the role. And, you know, it's just an unusually uh, protracted hiring process. Not once had they ever asked, have you done a lie tech project? They just assumed that because he was a black guy that had the experience doing commercial that he had, that, you know, that the point of entry had been you know, through someone's nonprofit uh, program doing light tech. That was just the, that was a tacit presumption. They didn't even feel the need to ask, you know, after, you know, you know, what sounds like four or five rounds of, uh, of interviews and hires. And so, so, so that sort of expectation exists in the industry. And, and, and I, you know, and John, that, that actually happens to me all the time. <laughs> Since I've been out on my own. <laughs> like, and usually the next question is like, well, Joe, where do you get your capital from? I'm like, I raise it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, what? I mean, I had to be getting stuff for free out here. Like, it's <laughs> no, that's that's uh, that's it. It's just the the, the way that it works. And, and I think, look, I, I try to you know take the you know take both sides of it. You know, on, on one hand, I think what what is unassailable is i think when you talk to a lot of people of color in the industry there is a notion of um the tying the work that they do to being able to have certain impact and influence in the communities in which they build and i think there's a certain sensitivity and i that that uh, that, that i find is a common vein you you certainly hear that you know consistently across and so I, I'll, I'll take at least some element of it as that but i think that in terms of where people have been able to to find talent that the nonprofits are, you know, have been key in that way. And I think, you know, that for me, that story really, 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 really underscored that expectation. And, you know, that although it's a, a, an important point of entry, that, that, that it shows that, that there are not enough from several of those other places that we need to cultivate as well. You both talked about two words that interest me to further explore a little bit more. One is networking. And the other is mindset. To me, uh, networking is a critical part of our industry. As every podcast guest I've had has said that, you know, it's so important. It's so critical to get to know people, understand, and have people refer. And reputation is so critical to be successful in our industry. And the other thing is, from your perspective, the mindset that people have. And what you've just, the examples you just cited, both of you, people have a different mindset when they uh, encounter people of color, it, it, it appears. And that's, how do we oversee? So the question is, how do we encourage people to network and be courageous enough to, to reach out? So a young black man coming into the industry, why shouldn't he pick up the phone and call? people just to, to, to network, you know, regardless of who they are, they're calling. And how can we change from an employment employer, employer standpoint, and also doing business standpoint, the mindset 
of people to think, you know, we're all human beings here. Everyone, everyone has the same perspective. Mm-hmm. At least they should. Mm-hmm. Why can't we do this? And what what's mm-hmm. going to get people to change or think to think differently in your minds? I always have a story for everything. I think <laughs> so. I have a story about this. Uh, so I um, mentor a kid that my wife put me in contact with, and I've been this kid is phenomenal, a black kid, and he knew nothing about real estate. He just interested. He called me. And everything I tell him to do, he does it. And I'm like amazed. Like, I, I've never had any mentee like this. <laughs> Where it's like, oh, wait, you did that? Oh, okay. You know, so I'm like, oh, go and look online and learn how to use Excel and do this and do that. And he's like, okay. And so he calls me and he's like, um, you know, two things he called me about. First one, he said he interviews with broker that I, I, will, I will leave nameless. And the broker asked, what is his long-term plans for life? That's literally what the question is. And he's like, well, I, I would hope to be able to own real estate in the future and, you know, uh, sort of retire so that I have like a lot of real estate. When he gets the feedback on interview, the person literally says, well, I want somebody ready to come in and work, not trying to be a principal. What? Like, I'm like, I'm like you asked this kid for like 20 years out. Like, what are you talking about? Like, and I said, do this. Send me an email and say this, right? <laughs> it's, I said, literally email said, I have, per- I have the perfect right to own real estate, I think, with your company, outside of your company as a broker. That's how the email started. And it went from there and he got the job, right? <laughs> so they were getting ready to dismiss him, like, because... He wants to be a principal. I'm like, no, push back on it. That's some mess. Second, so after he gets the job, he calls me. He's like, hey, you know, I looked at some other jobs and, you know, one of the people I interviewed with said they wanted to meet me for lunch. What should I do? What? Like, he already has an other job. He's like, but they're from a competitor. I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, no. Actually, Right now, all your competitors, contact somebody, each of those competitors, and make sure you have lunch with them. Let's go far. This is such a great idea. <laughs> well, I just want to say that that is, that, that is what we're dealing with sometimes, talking about mindset. So we talked about the mindset of the industry, but even African-Americans coming into the industry don't understand how it kind of works and fits together. And I was Lord, I was like, so you really was not going to go to lunch with this guy that was obviously impressed with you. <laughs> I said, he's like, but I work for a competitor. I'm like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Other than numbers, that's an important piece. I mean, you've got to teach people how to how to reach out, how to negotiate, how to how to meet, how to right, how to right. So, so, so I agree. It's like because I think. The other thing is what happens extreme, and I and I I always give this advice, and 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 um, you know John and John might disagree with it. So I say, <laughs> I say the first year, so you should have a three year plan. <laughs> the first year, you keep your head down, you do the work to the nth degree, like you do. You you work twelve hour days. Your your uh, models are perfect. 
So then they can't doubt your capability. The second year, you network internally to your organization. So then they can't doubt your affability, right? So you know how to work with others. So you reach out, so you call people in New York in your organization and you want everybody to know your name. There is a black kid at Low Enterprises in Washington, D.C., and he called me. He wants to talk for 20 minutes, right? So call everybody in your organization. So everybody in your organization knows who you are, right? And then the third year, you need to go to everything. And the after party to everything, and and the after party, the after party of that everything. So if they have a ULI bit, and some people are going to get drinks after go to get drinks. And then if they want to go over here after that, go, go to that too. So that should be your life. That Once you got those three things, everybody in your organization will know that you're capable. Everybody in your organization will know that you're affable. And everybody outside your organization will know that you're social. And, you know, maybe by then your, your models are looking crazy. Like mine started looking as I started networking more because I wasn't able to make them as perfect because I didn't have much time. Hmm. But by then they know you're capable. So it doesn't matter. They're like, oh, okay, yeah. He probably didn't have much, as much time to get this together. So were so, you mentored to do that, Joe? Were you mentored to do that? No, I just kind of came up with it. I, just, I think I, I think I'm like that at every place I go. That's how I was at Harvard. That's how, I, I'm just like that. I'm just like the first, like at Harvard, the first semester. I'm like, I'm going to show everybody I'm smart. I'm, I'm going to show everybody that I'm smart. So there's no excuse, right? <laughs> and after that, I can just I just you know loaf off and do what I want to do, you know. So that's that's my strategy. And I. I I will, I will write a book on that. I will do anything. I think that's an excellent strategy. Just you got to think of it in three steps. I, I'm not saying a year is perfect. It'd be six months. It could be something, but you got to think about it in six steps because otherwise it's always something missing, you know, always so, something. Oh, I don't know if I can, you know, people ask this crazy question. Could you really sit down to a drink with the person? Well, the person doesn't even drink. Like what, what are we talking about right now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I actually said that. I think somebody at low asked, like, you know, you know, I drink. I said, well, I don't actually drink. And I'm sure they were like, oh, you know. So, <laughs> All right. I'm going to stop hijack, hijacking your uh, podcast, John Cole. John, your, your perspective on that. I, I agree with all of those points. Look, I, I think that, look, we have to acknowledge that there's a problem at the fore because I think the solutions have to, once you acknowledge that there's a problem, then we can all be more intentional on both sides of the ledger about uh, the sorts of uh, actions that, um, that that we're going to take to address it. And and you know if we're all acting intentionally, then, then then we'll behave differently than we than we have, right? I think there certainly is onus uh, on the part of um, people who are you know prospective candidates to the industry. But I think if there's a seriousness about people who are prospective uh, hiring managers of those folks, you realize. That you know that that process has to. If you're going to prime the pump differently, you've got to act be long before the hiring process, right? You've got to work to to expand your networks as well. And Joe alluded to to some of that as, as well. So I think you have to extend yourself differently if you intend to, you know, to, to promulgate a, a network for the candidates themselves. I think you know the the professional network, the professional organizations and industry events tend to be a fantastic place to, to do that. And there's not a shortage of, of good ones, um, certainly not in the D.C. metro area. So, and some of those have been mentioned, places like ULI and DCBIA, AREP, Reese, BizNow, you know, th- those are just fantastic places to, to congregate a real estate group 
uh, fantastic places to congregate, to meet lots of smart people at, at all levels of the industry and, and, and all functions of the industry. And, you know, one of the things that I really encourage people to do, especially young professionals, um, you know, that I encounter is to, to, to form an opinion. Uh, and and I, I think, you know, a lot of, I think there's a tendency to be very deferential to say, you know, there are these um, really smart people and experienced people around, and this is what they think, and to to parrot a lot of, of 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 points. But you know, especially as a as a new entrant or a, as an early career professional, if you're willing to roll up your sleeves, you know, you start to form an opinion that matters. And I think you know, recognizing that you know, even very experienced people don't necessarily have an opinion that's more that's significantly more valuable than yours, you know, yours can be informed by different things and that you may have a slightly different point of view, but the, you know, an important point of being able to engage with people is to have a perspective and to be able to to share and to challenge, uh, you know, look, you're looking at the same transactions, you're looking at broad market dynamics, you know, look, there are certain secular changes that are occurring in our industry and uh, millennials and Gen Z, Professionals have a different perspective than you know Gen X and and, and baby boomers, and, and an important one to to, to proffer to the uh, to the equation. And so you know, with prop tech influencing our industry increasingly, and just a, a change in the sort of way that business is conducted, there's an important dialogue that can occur. And so finding those ways to assert your own perspective, you know, is a I, I think a powerful point of engagement, and, and it's it's one that that you're, you're, you know, can be uniquely well-suited to, to offer. So, so recognize that your opinion matters and, you know, and, and, and seek to engage with folks. I think that, you know, a lot of the um, professional organizations have not only young leaders groups, but a lot of, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of subgroups that, that, that offer opportunities to more closely engage with small groups of folks. And I think the more personally that you're able to, to work with people, to whether to put on events or to to engage in discussions are important. And you know, to what Joe said, you know, whether it's uh, coffees and and um, you know calls inside and outside of your organization, you know, I think that in general people are willing to do that. You know, when 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 asked, that doesn't mean they always happen right away. But I think you know, by and large, I think you know the folks in our industry are you know can make themselves available when, when asked, you know, and so it's recognizing, recognizing from the outside in that, you know, that, that just asking can often be, you know, enough to be able to engage. And then when you have an opportunity to engage, be prepared to engage in a thoughtful and meaningful way, you know, the more that it becomes a two-way conversation, the more that people are inclined to extend that beyond the, beyond the first. I also want to emphasize, you talk about small groups, John. I want to emphasize another aspect that I took it in, into my own hands about three, four years ago, and that's the forum, the mastermind group that you, both of you are members of. And I think that those types of groups of four to five, maybe six people together can encourage each other in a, in a way that is very powerful in my view. And I think I would encourage everyone listening to think about doing this. And I would be very, it's, it's, it's important to think about that. And uh, if anyone's interested that's listening, you know, write back to me on, uh, on my email, which is, uh, you can re- link through my podcast uh, network. 
and I can help you in setting up a, your own mastermind group. And I think it's a real powerful event. And I, on purpose, was looking for to mix it demographically with black and lit ladies and, and old and young. So I was trying to, you know, we're not quite young enough yet. I, there's probably another young person I could get on, but. Uh, right. We're not young enough anymore. We and John are not young enough anymore. We need to find somebody in their 30s and 20s. But John's young. John's a year younger than me, I think. So he's a, he's a young guy. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say we have a good perspective because we all come from things a little differently and it, it, it adds a lot to the, to the group. So I want to shift gears for a moment because I know we don't have much time. I was going to go into the pandemic, and I'm I'm probably not going to do that now. I think what we're going to do is go directly to uh, kind of each of one of your your biggest wins, losses, and surprising events in your career. So, Joe, if you want to kick us off with that, what are you your biggest win, your biggest loss, and most surprising event? I think the biggest win um, was um, I think City Vista, as I said earlier. Um, because that could have went very, very bad. Like sometimes I think about that. Like, was Low actually trying to set me up for failure? Actually, when they gave me this, <laughs> I mean, literally, we were selling. We had to sell. What was it like? Uh, Three hundred and fifty condos in two thousand eight. Like what? Who? What? You know? And I was just foolish enough to be like, "Oh, I can do this." Oh, that's nothing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to deliver a Safeway and we had to sell it to uh, some retail buyer. We we're going to go into foreclosure and we had to rent up an apartment building all at once in 2008. And I took it and, and, and ran with it. And it was a win. I mean, even today, that project is iconic, right? That That project is like the definition of how you do public-private partnerships the right way and you know how you bring energy to a neighborhood. Now, I wish the neighborhood was a little bit more diverse, but at least in City Vista with a 20% affordable, there is you know at least a piece of economic and racial equity there that sustains to this day. As far as losses, I would say the biggest loss, and it was end up being a lesson, was there were probably, there are actually two deals, but one was especially brutal where the capital partner walked away, right? So as I said earlier, Lowe is not the kind of company that sues their partner or walks away or gets it, but sometimes the capital partner walks away and it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> you know? So a deal in which a capital partner walks away teaches you early in your career that it is about money, getting money and raising money, but it's about understanding the character of your partner, right? Because neither of the deals that it happened in collapsed afterwards, but they felt like it was going to collapse, right? They lost confidence or whatever it was, and they were just like, we're out. And you know, to learn and then to learn, okay, what are the characteristics of a good partner out of that? As far as the, the most surprising, the most surprising part, like kind of what you said earlier, that my ultimate mentor, my main mentor at Low Enterprises ended up being a 60-something year old man from middle Texas. 
right? White man from Middle Texas, right? Bob Weekly. And as soon as I came to the organization, I think I reached out to him. He met me a couple of times. And I was still in my phase my first year of like really being good, like I said. And he just he just attached to me. And for a while, I didn't even know he was my mentor. He was I was more his mentee than he was my mentor. Because I would be like, why, why is why is Bob Weekly calling me? And he would call me. And he just taught me so many nuggets of the real estate industry. And he took the time. I don't know what was going on in his brain, right? So maybe it was, hey, I need to give something to the Black community. I need to, you know, here's a guy. I don't know what it was going on in his brain. But for a long time, I didn't catch on to it. I'm talking about four or five years. Like, he would, like, schedule meetings with me. And I was like, why is he scheduling meetings with me? Like, I would be scared. I'm like, am I supposed to report something? Because he was like on the board for the for the company. I'm like, what is what is he calling me for? Uh, <laughs> and then as so he actually passed away of um, a really debilitating cancer while I was at Lowe. And so that realization came toward the end of his life that he was my mentor. Right. And so now I often think of him and I and I and I remember those times and the time that he invested in me. So that was just a huge surprise, both him leaving Earth the way he did and the fact that he literally talked to me. He, we had, our, we had a, a monthly meeting. He literally called me from what I didn't know was his deathbed. Like his assistant called me and said, he still wants to meet, right? And I was like, okay, you know, and this is literally two days before he passed, right? Wow. And then he took the energy to pour into me. And, you know, that was a very personal conversation. He poured into me what I could be and what he saw I could be. And literally he said, you are a special person and don't forget that. Right. Even though at that time I was 30, you know, eight years old or something, and you know, that's something John probably tells his kids, like you're a special person. Don't forget it. But it was still (laughs) important to me. And so that's, that was the most surprising that's mind. awesome, Joe. John, yeah. do, you, do you have the time to, to tell us? Go ahead. Your turn. Uh, sure, sure. I'll try to, uh, I'll see if I can can, can wrap all three and in, 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 in one. So when I joined McFarland Partners, it was at the height of the market. I joined in the summer of 2007. The market had been extremely hot and, and um, I was joining in DC, which was a region where McFarland had just started moving in in the second half of 2006, but just, you know, very, very aggressively into the space. And so, you know, during that span, they had established a huge series of partnerships with Lehman Brothers uh, across seven properties uh, at the uh, the ballpark, partnerships with um, TCR, Trammell Core Residential, now Mill Mill Creek, Abbey Road. Uh, There was a huge uh, partnership with JBG that they were starting amongst others with Jire Lynch Development Partners and others. And so there was this full expectation that we were going to grow the team to a very to become very large. DC was going to become the hub of activity. We were going to grow a team of roughly seven employees to a team of uh, roughly 40 um, was the intention. And um, there was a dynamic person leading the office. And um, you know, it was, you know, it was it was professionally a very exciting situation. You know, in the when the market when the market shifted, you know, I, I, you know, the reality for me became a very different situation. Uh, by the end of my first year, I was one of two remaining professionals. By the end of my second year, I, there, there was just me. 
and that persisted for uh, for for a few years. Um, DC was uh, the region where we had the most asset exposure for the entire ten years that I spent at McFarland Partners, and what was um, anticipated to be a role that um, involved some asset management, but was supposed to be largely an acquisitions role, at least initially, turned into something that you know quickly transitioned to being um, workouts. And um, although on the emerging manager side, we did, you know, a lot of um, strategic uh, work and, and, and acquisition. So, you know, for me professionally, that was, um, you know, represented a you know, huge opportunity to make the best of it. And it turned out to be, you know, a tremendous learning opportunity. There were some instances where, you know, there was a lot of uh, personal capital um, that I had to to, to proffer to get some things done. You know, I can think of one in particular where uh, uh, our team was prepared to to hand the keys back on a property. And, and I made the recommendation not only to not do that, but to, to double down and to pony up capital in our partner stead. As Lehman Brothers was in bankruptcy at that point, our lender, Chorus Bank, had been seized by the FDIC and was in receivership. And Monument, the sponsor of that deal, had been financed by Lehman, so it was a very precarious situation. Um, so, convincing the our investor, our investment committee, and our investors to do that was an important opportunity for me. I, I um, after um, I got approval for it, you know, I uh, talked to Victor in the hallway, and he said, um, he said, um, you know, good job, you know, you, you made a compelling case. He said, are you willing to bet your career on it? I said, and I, I reiterated some of the points that I, I made during the discussion as, as to why I thought it was cogent investment. And then I, as we, and, and he nodded in agreement and, and started walking away. And I turned and I said, wait a minute, did I just bet my career on? <laughs> <laughs> so, I think you knew with City Vista. I didn't know how bad my career on City Vista. So, you know, it worked out extremely well. For exactly the reasons that I mentioned, and and uh, you know, it, it was a big part of what contributed to my success of the organization. But finding the opportunity and the silver lining in those, you know, for me was the you know the biggest win amongst that biggest surprise and loss. Well, this has been great, guys. There's one final question I'm going to ask Joe. I'm going to let you answer this, John. I think you have to take off, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you, John, for your for your participation today. Bye, John. Absolutely, John. Thank you so much for having. Sorry, uh, sorry to have to run, but um, but always a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye now. Bye, Joe. Yes. So my my final question is: if you could post a statement on a billboard in the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Joe? <laughs> I, I think it would just say a simple word: give. Give. And how people translate that, you know? So it, it, I think it's a very stirring statement. I think that's all I would say. That's great, Joe. Joe, thank you very much. Appreciate yeah. your accommodation today. I think this was an outstanding absolutely uh, podcast, and I really appreciate it. And hopefully, my listeners agree. Yeah, thank, thank you, John, you. for even putting this together because I think it was the right podcast for the right time. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Joe. Have a great day. Uh, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. So we're now uh, on to the postscript for the episode with John and Joe. And I'm uh, bringing my cohort here, Tom Amos, in to reflect on what was a very powerful final 
discussion here with uh, John and Joe in our second uh, second episode of the two-part episode. So, Tom, take it away. Sure thing, John. So we'll dive right in here. For me, the most one of the most eye-opening things that you and John and Joe talked about was the part where John was bringing up the work that he's doing, and you know, specifically the Lou deed of foreclosure for some of those properties and the forfeiture that that he had mentioned. I did a little bit of digging, not on home purchasing or or anything like that, but there's a lot of information out there pertaining to, you know, the rental disparity of impoverished areas. Uh, there's a great book out there called Evicted by Matthew Desmond that that uh, really goes into great detail and and has some stories of kind of different parts of Middle America and kind of some of the problems with with our current systems when it comes to to landlord and tenant relationships on both sides. And so some of the statistics that I came across, I, I, I Rent Cafe has a great ranking system for states and how they do for what is the most rent friendly, renter friendly state and what is the most landlord friendly state. And they base it on security deposits, rent increases, habitability, and eviction notices. You know, uh, Vermont actually was the most renter friendly state, according to this survey. And then uh, DC actually was top eight, which which is no surprise that that's it's uh, there's a lot of favorable things in this area for renters. And then generally, the areas that are more landlord friendly are primarily uh, in the South and the Rust Belt areas. It's interesting. Right after I got done listening to the the recording, John Joe had mentioned that he, he says. You know, there were no people living in the Capitol Hill area. Or, or he had somebody say that during one of his meetings. And uh, this weekend I was talking, I, I live here at City Vista, which actually keeps getting mentioned in the podcast, uh, which is which is kind of funny. And I was talking to a friend about that. And, you know, they were talking about before this building was here that there was there was nothing in this area. And so it was interesting that 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 Joe had just made mention of that, and I I, I kind of uh, told that person I, I pointed out to them, hey, look, there was something here before before City Vista, and uh, and and called that to their attention. So that's interesting that that was kind of applicable there. The other thing that I want to talk about was John. He mentions during the recording that senior level executive leadership within the real estate industry by his account was only 2% blacks. Some information I found were that um, for the three largest publicly traded real estate firms, that there are only about 5% of black people on any type of leadership position within those, those large firms. And then generally, not just applying to the real estate industry, but black professionals in 2008 held 3.3% of all executive or senior leadership roles, according to the U.S. Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. So, you know, we know, we know that blacks and minorities are, are being 
underrepresented in these top level positions. We've talked about that in some of the other podcasts. I thought one of the best takeaways from this for me moving forward was Joe's suggestion to kind of mine or, or go into areas that are that are outside the norm for for finding good minority talent. And I, I thought that was really helpful and, and, and a great suggestion and something for us and for listeners to think about. John, what what did you kind of think about? There was a lot that you guys covered. What were what were some of your takeaways from from this one? Well it's it, it pretty incredible uh, some of the things that they had to say. Clearly they're both very intelligent men and they take a uh, what I really enjoyed was kind of a high level view of things. But they also brought it down to the personal view. So as you suggested, Joe's comment about no one living on Capitol Hill before was just kind of struck to the heart of the matter. It isn't necessarily a conscious racism. It's an unconscious racism that people have. They don't really realize it. And it's just a function of continuing to communicate continue to bring the messages that Martin Luther King delivered to us 50 years ago over and over. Just keep doing it. And events that have occurred over the last few months, and then another one just recently, again, police get shooting, just continues to reemphasize that we need to be more conscious of this whole issue. People need to be aware of it. They need to you know, reach out and be a little bit more proactive in addressing these issues. So John's point, I think, is that we need to have programs that are, you know, active and reaching into the minority communities to seek out leadership potential. Uh, As Joe said, you know, and John said, actually, that there is not a deep pool of qualified applicants in our in this industry. So what I, I believe, and we talked about a little bit, is to get into earlier stage training and awareness. So some of the programs that we talked about, Project REAP and ULI's Urban Plan, come into an earlier format than even, you know, below ahead of college even. So in, in high school, just to bring a re- awareness of our industry, have you know, practical ways of learning and and learning about it, and then offering the discipline potential of you know building to become a real estate professional at at that level. So it's really an awareness issue, and there are fortunately now more and more programs coming about to do this. And so I think that's very important. And I hope it, it's a generational thing to some extent. I think that. The generation I'm in, I think it's a little late for us. I mean, we're all about ready to end our careers. I think it's up to your generation and younger to think about how how to transition the thought process in the industry. Good thoughts. John, you'd mentioned when we were talking offline, John had, had some really good insight for kind of that three-year plan. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Joe had a, and it's probably his personality to some extent, but he had a very proactive approach. And it goes back to his, as he says, I asked him, 
were you mentored to do this? And he said, no, it's just something that I just decided to take care of starting in college to think this way. So his three-step approach, which he said he would, from a professional standpoint, would do it in a one-year process, is spend the first year working your butt off, basically 12, 14-hour days, you know, just doing everything you can to not only meet your job expectations, but exceed and excel in your work. Just work very hard, stand out among your peers. And the only way to do that is just to work your butt off, work until, you know, just have this insatiable curiosity, dig, 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 keep going. And then the second year is to, if you're in a larger company, particularly start to get to know people internally, particularly all the way up the ladder to the senior leadership, get to know them personally, make sure that they know who you are and that you've demonstrated your worth in your first year and obviously continuing on to your second year that you are somebody worth focusing on and you know relying on in doing work and obviously spreading your responsibilities out as far as you can and still doing extremely well in what you're doing and then the third year go outside your company and do the same thing with people and network get to know people and, and build courage. And we talk a little bit about courage. You aren't necessarily r- raised to, to reach out to people. So you almost have to look, you know, build the courage internally to be able to say, you know, why shouldn't I just give this person a call? And the one thing that I learned early in my career is that older people in our industry love it when young people reach out to them and ask questions. And sometimes it's surprising to people. It's like, wow, he actually did spend some time listening to me. So uh, I encourage people to think that way, regardless of whether you're black, white, or or Asian, or whatever you are ethnically. Uh, don't be afraid to reach out to senior leaders. And I think the opportunity is now wider open for black and minority students to do that, to reach out to senior leadership, because they're just as senior leadership are just as uncertain about how to reach down into the into the minority communities themselves. Theirs has been. So, you know, build the courage internally to do it because you might be surprised how receptive people will be. So that's my message there. Yeah, I think that three-step process that that Joe brought up, you know, that working hard, you know, you have to have that foundation in order to be able to speak intelligent, right? So that first part is so important for for establishing, you know, a knowledge of whatever it is that you do. And and I, I thought that that was a really good one. The, uh, you know, and to your point with reaching out to, you know, senior level individuals, out, you know, whether it's outside your own organization or maybe within, you know, it, it is, I think through this whole process, it's been obvious uh, through this podcast, you know, that people are happy to talk about what they do. You know, I think that um, they they really want to pass that along to, to other people. And um, yeah, I, I think that's a good point. That's what I had here today, John. Yeah. Okay. Do we Thank you, John, Tom. I appreciate it. And yeah. <laughs> so listeners, thank you very much for participating or listening to us today. We, this has been 
I believe, an extraordinary series, uh, the last two episodes of discussion. And I encourage you to reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com if you have any commentary or thoughts or respond to the LinkedIn thing with any comments or thoughts about this episode. And I'm my my hope is that the takeaways are, are such that uh, it will help you reach out to minorities. And if you're a minority listener, don't hesitate to go pursue this industry. We are really working on trying to diversify and uh, become a uh, better citizens going forward. So thank you for listening and uh, look forward to speaking to you next time.